when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, buck bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Friends of Shakespeare and Company read Ulysses by James Joyce. Read today by David Soloy. Possibly perceiving an expression of dubiosity on their faces, the globetrotter went on adhering to his adventures. And I seen a man killed in Trieste by an Italian chap, knife in his back, knife like that. While speaking, he produced a dangerous-looking clasp knife, quite in keeping with his character, and held it in the striking position. In a knocking shop, it was count of a trion between two smugglers. Fellow hid behind a door, come up behind him, like that. Prepare to meet your god, says he. Chuck. It went into his back up to the butt. His heavy glance, drowsily roaming about, kind of defied their further questions, even should they by any chance want to. That's a good bit of steel, repeated he, examining his formidable stiletto. After which harrowing denouement sufficient to appall the stoutest, he snapped the blade to and stowed the weapon in question away, as before in his chamber of horrors, otherwise pocket. They're great for the cold steel, somebody who was evidently quite in the dark said for the benefit of them all. That was why they thought the park murders of the Invincibles was done by foreigners, on account of them using knives. At this remark, passed obviously in the spirit of where ignorance is bliss, Mr. Bloom and Stephen, each in his own particular way, both instinctively exchanged meaning glances. In a religious silence of the strictly entre nous variety, however, towards where Skin the Goat, alias the Keeper, was drawing spurts of liquid from his boiler affair. His inscrutable face, which was really a work of art, a perfect study in itself, beggaring description, conveyed the impression that he didn't understand one jot of what was going on. Funny, very. There ensued a somewhat lengthy pause. One man was reading by fits and starts, sustained by coffee evening journal. Another, the card with the natives shows a day. Another, the seaman's discharge. Mr. Bloom, so far as he was personally concerned, was just pondering in pensive mood. He vividly recollected when the occurrence alluded to took place, as well as yesterday, some score of years previously, in the days of the land troubles, when it took the civilised world by storm, figuratively speaking, early in the 80s, 81 to be correct, when he was just turned 15. Aye, boss, the sailor broke in, give us back them papers. The request being complied with, he clawed them up with a scrape. Have you seen the Rock of Gibraltar? Mr. Bloom inquired. The sailor grimaced, chewing, in a way that might be read as yes, I, or no. Ah, you've touched there too, Mr. Bloom said, Europa Point, thinking he had, in the hope that the rover might possibly by some reminiscences, but he failed to do so, simply letting spurt a jet of spew into the sawdust and shook his head, 
with a sort of lazy scorn. What year would that be about? Mr. Bloom interpolated. Can you recall the boats? Our soi-disant sailor munched heavily a while, hungrily, before answering. I'm tired of all them rocks in the sea, he said, and boats and ships, salt junk all the time. Tired, seemingly, he ceased. His questioner, perceiving that he was not likely to get a great deal of change out of such a wily old customer, fell to wool gathering on the enormous dimensions of the water about the globe. Suffice it to say that, as a casual glance at the map revealed, it covered fully three-fourths of it, and he fully realised accordingly what it meant to rule the waves. On more than one occasion, a dozen at the lowest, near the North Bull at Dolly Mount, he had remarked a superannuated old salt, evidently derelict, seated habitually near the not particularly redolent sea on the wall, staring quite obliviously at it, and it at him, dreaming of fresh woods and pastures new, as someone somewhere sings. And it left him wondering why. Possibly he had tried to find out the secret for himself, floundering up and down the antipodes and all that sort of thing, and over and under, well, not exactly under, tempting the fates. And the odds were 20 to nil, there was really no secret about it at all. Nevertheless, without going into the minutiae of the business, the eloquent fact remained that the sea was there in all its glory, and in the natural course of things, somebody or other had to sail on it and fly in the face of providence, though it merely went to show how people usually contrive to load that sort of onus onto the other fellow, like the hell idea and the lottery and insurance, which were run on identically the same lines, so that for that very reason, if no other, Lifeboat Sunday was a very laudable institution to which the public at large, no matter where living, inland or seaside, as the case might be, having it brought home to them like that, should extend its gratitude also to the harbour masters and coast guard service who had to man the rigging and push off and out amid the elements, whatever the season, when duty called, Ireland expects that every man, and so on, and sometimes had a terrible time of it in the winter time, not forgetting the Irish lights, Kish and the others, liable to capsize at any moment rounding which he once with his daughter had experienced some remarkably choppy, not to say stormy, weather. There was a fellow sailed with me in the rover, the old sea dog, himself a rover, proceeded, went ashore and took up a soft job as gentleman's valet, at six quid a month. Them are his trousers I've on me, and he gave me an oilskin and that jackknife. I'm game for that job, shaving and brush up. I hate roaming about. There's my son Danny now, run off to sea, and his mother got him took in a drapers in Cork where he could be drawing easy money. What age is he? queried one hearer, who, by the way, seen from the side, bore a distant resemblance to Henry Campbell, the town clerk, away from the carking cares of office, unwashed, of course, and in a seedy get-up and a strong suspicion of nose paint about the nasal appendage. Why? the sailor answered with a slow, puzzled utterance. My son Danny? He'd be about eighteen now, way I figure it. 
The skibbereen father hereupon tore open his grey or unclean anyhow shirt with two hands and scratched away at his chest on which was to be seen an image tattooed in blue Chinese ink intended to represent an anchor. There was lice in that bunk in Bridgewater, he remarked, sure as nuts. I must get a wash tomorrow or next day. It's them black lads I object to. I hate those buggers. Sucks your blood dry, they does. Seeing they were all looking at his chest, he accommodatingly dragged his shirt more open so that, on top of the time-honoured symbol of the mariner's hope and rest, they had a full view of the figure 16 and a young man's side face, looking frowningly rather. Tattoo, the exhibitor explained. That was done when we were lying becalmed off Odessa in the Black Sea under Captain Dalton. Fellow the name of Antonio done that. There he is himself, a Greek. Did it hurt much doing it? One asked the sailor. That worthy, however, was busily engaged in collecting round the sunway in his squeezing or... See here, he said, showing Antonio. There he is, cursing the mate. And there he is now, he added. The same fellow, pulling the skin with his fingers, some special knack evidently, and he laughing at a yarn. And in point of fact, the young man named Antonio's livid face did actually look like forced smiling, and the curious effect excited the unreserved admiration of everybody, including Skin the Goat, who this time stretched over. Aye, aye, sighed the sailor, looking down on his manly chest. He's gone too, et by sharks after. Aye, aye. He let go of the skin so that the profile resumed the normal expression of before. Neat bit of work, Longshoreman One said. And what's the number for? Loafer number two queried. Eaten alive? A third asked the sailor. Aye, aye, sighed again the latter personage. More cheerily this time, with some sort of half-smile, for a brief duration only, in the direction of the questioner about the number. A Greek, he was. And then he added, with rather gallows-bird humour, considering his alleged end, as bad as old Antonio, for he left me on my own EO. The face of a streetwalker, glazed and haggard under a black straw hat, peered askew round the door of the shelter, palpably reconnoitring on her own with the object of bringing more grist to her mill. Mr. Bloom, scarcely knowing which way to look, turned away on the moment, flustered but outwardly calm and picking up from the table the pink sheet of the Abbey Street organ which the Jarvey, if such he was, had laid aside, he picked it up and looked at the pink of the paper, though why pink? His reason for doing so was he recognised on the moment round the door the same face he had caught a fleeting glimpse of that afternoon on Ormond Quay, the partially idiotic female, namely, of the lane, who knew the lady in the brown costume does be with you, Mrs B., and begged the chance of his washing. Also, why washing, which seemed rather vague than not. Your washing. Still, candour compelled him to admit that he had washed his wife's undergarments when soiled in Hollis Street, and women would and did too a man's similar garments, initialed with Bullion Draper's marking ink. Hers were, that is, if they really loved him, that is to say. Love me, love my dirty shirt. 
Still, just then, being on tenterhooks, he desired the female's room more than her company, so it came as a genuine relief when the keeper made her a rude sign to take herself off. Round the side of the evening telegraph, he just caught a fleeting glimpse of her face round the side of the door, with a kind of demented, glassy grin showing that she was not exactly all there, viewing with evident amusement the group of gazers round Skipper Murphy's nautical chest. And then there was no more of her. The gunboat, the keeper said. It beats me, Mr. Bloom confided to Stephen, medically I'm speaking, how a wretched creature like that from the lock hospital, reeking with disease, can be barefaced enough to solicit or how any man in his sober senses, if he values his health at least, unfortunate creature. Of course, I suppose some man is ultimately responsible for her condition, still no matter what the cause is from. Stephen had not noticed her and shrugged his shoulders, merely remarking, in this country, people sell much more than she ever had and do a roaring trade. Fear not them that sell the body, but have not power to buy the soul. She is a bad merchant. She buys dear and sells cheap. The elder man, though not by any manner of means an old maid or a prude, said that it was nothing short of a crying scandal that ought to be put a stop to in Stanter to say that women of that stamp, quite apart from any old maidish squeamishness on the subject, a necessary evil, were not licensed and medically inspected by the proper authorities, a thing he could truthfully state he, as a pater familias, was a stalwart advocate of from the very first start. Whoever embarked on a policy of that sort, he said, and ventilated the matter thoroughly, would confer a lasting boon on everybody concerned. You, as a good Catholic, he observed, talking of body and soul, believe in the soul. Or do you mean the intelligence, the brain power as such, as distinct from any outside object, the table, let's say, that cup? I believe in that myself because it has been explained by competent men as the convolutions of the grey matter. Otherwise, we would never have such inventions as x-rays, for instance. Do you? Thus cornered, Stephen had to make a superhuman effort of memory to try and concentrate and remember before he could say, They tell me on the best authority it is a simple substance and therefore incorruptible. It would be immortal, I understand, but for the possibility of its annihilation by its first cause, who from all I can hear, is quite capable of adding that to the number of his other practical jokes, corruptio per se and corruptio per accidens, both being excluded by court etiquette. Mr. Bloom thoroughly acquiesced in the general gist of this, though the mystical finesse involved was a bit out of his sublunary depth, still he felt bound to enter a demurrer on the head of simple, promptly rejoining, simple? I shouldn't think that is the proper word. Of course, I grant you to concede a point. You do knock across a simple soul once in a blue moon. But what I'm anxious to arrive at is it is one thing, for instance, to invent those rays Röntgen did, or the telescope like Edison, though I believe it was before his time. Galileo was the man, I mean. The same applies to the laws, for example, of a far-reaching natural phenomenon such as electricity. But it's a horse of quite another colour to say you believe in the existence of a supernatural god. Oh, that, Stephen expostulated, 
has been proved conclusively by several of the best-known passages in Holy Writ, apart from the circumstantial evidence. On this knotty point, however, the views of the pair, poles apart as they were, both in schooling and everything else, with the marked difference in their respective ages, clashed. Has been, the more experienced of the two objected, sticking to his original point. I'm not so sure about that. That's a matter of every man's opinion. And without dragging in the sectarian side of the business, I beg to differ with you in toto there. My belief is, to tell you the candid truth, that those bits were genuine forgeries, all of them put in by monks most probably, or it's the big question of our national poet over again. Who precisely wrote them, like Hamlet and Bacon? As you who know your Shakespeare infinitely better than I, of course I needn't tell you. Can't you drink that coffee, by the way? Let me stir it and take a piece of that bun. It's like one of our skipper's bricks disguised. Still, no one can give what he hasn't got. Try a bit. Couldn't. Stephen contrived to get out, his mental organs for the moment refusing to dictate further. Fault-finding being a proverbially bad hat, Mr. Bloom thought well to stir, or try to, the clotted sugar from the bottom, and reflected with something approaching acrimony on the coffee palace and its temperance and lucrative work. To be sure, it was a legitimate object, and beyond yea or nay did a world of good. Shelters such as the present one they were in, run on teetotal lines for vagrants at night, concerts, dramatic evenings, and useful lectures, admittance free, by qualified men for the lower orders. On the other hand, he had a distinct and painful recollection they paid his wife, Madame Marion Tweedy, who had been prominently associated with them at one time, a very modest remuneration indeed for her piano playing. The idea, he was strongly inclined to believe, was to do good and net a profit, there being no competition to speak of. Sulfate of copper poison, FSO4, or something in some dried peas he remembered reading of in a cheap eating house somewhere, but he couldn't remember when it was or where. Anyhow, inspection, medical inspection of all eatables, seemed to him more than ever necessary, which possibly accounted for the vogue of Dr. Tibble's Vicoco on account of the medical analysis involved. Have a shot at it now, he ventured to say of the coffee, after being stirred. Thus prevailed on to at any rate taste it, Stephen lifted the heavy mug from the brown puddle it clopped out of it when taken up by the handle and took a sip of the offending beverage. Still, it's solid food, his good genius urged. I'm a stickler for solid food. His one and only reason being not gourmandizing in the least, but regular meals as the sine qua non for any kind of proper work, mental or manual. You ought to eat more solid food. You'd feel a different man. Liquids I can eat, Stephen said, but oblige me by taking away that knife. I can't look at the point of it. It reminds me of Roman history. <laughs>